I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This month on the Virago podcast, we have a double header for you. First up, we have Susie Boyd discussing her latest novel, Love and Fame. And then we have Rachel Seifert in conversation with her editor, Lenny Goodings, talking about her own novel, A Boy in Winter, as well as the German classic novel, The Seventh Cross by Anna Seggers, a novel of war and resistance, which we've just published for the first time in the UK on the Virago Modern Classics list. Welcome to the Virago podcast. I'm Grace from Virago and I'm delighted to welcome Susie Boyt, author of recently published Love and Fame, which is a highly strung comedy about love and grief. Susie is the author of five other very acclaimed novels and the much-loved memoir My Judy Garland Life, which was shortlisted for the Penn Ackerley Prize, staged at the Nottingham Playhouse and serialised on BBC Radio 4. She has written about art, life and fashion for the Financial Times for the past 14 years and has recently edited The Turn of the Screw and Other Ghost Stories by Henry James. She's also a director at the Hampstead Theatre. Susie, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, in your own words, could you tell us a little bit about your new novel, Love and Fame? Well, I sort of started writing Love and Fame to cheer myself up. I'd had a very difficult few years and I'd also been reading a lot of very high-spirited American novels, such as Where Do You Go, Bernadette, and We're All Completely mm-hmm. Beside Ourselves. And I wanted to write something very lively, with a less refined tone, um, possibly, than some of my earlier books. And I wanted to have the the sort of liveliness and the verve that, that I'd... Um, and the sort of bounce of American those American novels mm-hmm. I'd been enjoying, but also to still um, look at the subjects that I've always treated, for example, all the different ways that family life can go wrong and whether anything can be done about it, how to be good in the world without getting sort of ground down, and also how do we bear the things that we can't bear. And so I wanted to um, use some of that sort of um, apparent lightness to come at these subjects very much sort of on the slant. Mm. Um, But to answer more... um, to answer more your question, <laughs> um, Love and Fame is a portrait of a first year of a marriage that has quite a lot going for it, but quite a lot of odds stacked against it as well. Um, it's a novel about grief, and I wanted to particularly examine the way grief assaults the personality, how after a bereavement we none of us really feel ourselves, and that's a sort of dangerous mode in which to navigate the world. Mm. Um, 
and um, I also wanted to uh, set the book in a in the sort of world of show business and look at the harrowing sides of the profession, which uh, aren't exactly unwell known. But I suppose for people like me who really idolise everything to do with the stage, they're they're sort of timely reminders to <laughs> us. Um, I also wanted to start a book with a marriage, whereas traditionally books have sort of ended with a marriage. That's so true. Yeah, and, and there's another theme I wanted to look at as well, which is sisters. There's a pair of sisters in the book who live next door to each other and, and are very close, possibly too close, and are having to slightly um, audition different ways to separate from each other. And they have a... I like that thing you get in families where one child is said to be the clever one, one is said to be the handsome one, one is said to be the traveller, one is said to be the thinker and all that kind of thing. And, and these sisters sort of superficially at least, one is said to be the nice one and one is said to be the horrid one. And they kind of understand that and almost joke about that within themselves that, you know, one of them's a bit more sort of soothing and one of them's a bit more exciting to be around. And I wanted to have an idea that that these sisters could sort of occupy these roles within their little two-person family and it wouldn't be a sort of strain, it was a sort of joke and almost a, a, a comforting thing mm. that they had been prescribed these different roles. I'm definitely the nice one. I don't know about you. <laughs> I once, because um, I've got so many sisters, someone once said to me, which one are you? And I, it was such an annoying question. I said, I think I'm the second mildest. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Really confused Maybe I have everyone. to use that. <laughs> you get the kind of raised eyebrow. Um, <laughs> And so in Love and Fame, as you mentioned, it's, it's really, I felt at least, rooted in the world of the theatre and, and the leading character, Eve, has had this promising acting career, which was really blighted by um, stage fright and, and her father was a highly esteemed actor. What was it that drew you to write about the theatre? Well, I suppose I've always thought of the theatrical world as the sort of highest one, the most real, the most colourful, the most attractive, the most, the best. And I, I suppose I... I I, I wrote a lot about that in my in my memoir, my Judy Garland life, about the if you've got that pull to the stage, mm. nothing else is going to feel quite as good in, in a way. Um, I, as a child, I thought that um, the theatrical life would sort of make a, make a lot of sense of the things that I didn't understand about the world, which is an even stronger reason not to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, um, and. Yeah, I was also very interested in stage fright as a sort of particular branch of, of anxiety. There's a bit in the book where um, the heroine, who's called Eve, her mother says to her, I can't think of any other profession where it's completely normal to go to work terrified every day. And yes, perhaps you're a bomb disposal mm. expert. And, and just that, that sort of um, that sense of having to be physically, emotionally and psychologically braced um, f to do in order to do your job, yeah. we're all used to having to use those skills in our personal lives. <laughs> but yes. I was sort of thinking, thinking about that as well. Yeah, it's a very kind of high octane situation to be placed in, and that that anxiety, which is so um, so central to the book, which I really thought anxiety is so linked to fame. Um, and Eve, our, our main character, has just got married to an anxiety expert who's in the middle of writing the book on anxiety, and they seem to have two very different opinions opinions on anxiety. What was it you were trying to say to readers about anxiety by way of portraying it in these two very different ways? Well, it's complicated to speak of, and there's nothing more anxious-making than thinking about what your <laughs> position on anxiety is. Plus, it's a, probably one of the most elastic words in the English language because it can refer to a sort of sense of mild 
indigestion in the brain to overwhelming panic and fear that's completely destabilizing and, and um, makes you unable to live mm -hmm. your life. And I suppose most of us feel probably in our lives, both ends of the spectrum, at some point. So I suppose I was aware that um, anxiety affects everyone and people feel it greatly and it's often discussed certainly amongst the people I know. Um, as we never really get inside in a very deep way Jim's book in that we, it, none of the book is actually recreated mm. on the page although he does speak about it um, the books I think implies that Eve's view of Jim's book about anxiety isn't quite the book that he's written mm. and she has really focused on the side of the book that speaks for anxiety as something that's necessary to high achievement or to fastidious behaviour or, or sort of living a good life in a way that a kind of heightened version of being a conscientious person. Um, and then later on in the book, Jim's editor, Max, says that the book is really a book about kindness. So, and, and he even says right at the end of the book, she agrees to read it, and he says it's not nearly as bad as you hope. So there is a sort of idea that by not knowing what's in the book, Eve has made it into something much, much worse mm. than it is, or um, because Jim is a a person of feeling and intelligence. He couldn't have written a book saying that anxiety is great, yeah, 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 kind of thing, because he's that that would then make him an idiot, which he isn't. Yeah. And so so the book sort of withholds that side of it, but it but it but I think it is there that that um you know anxiety is a is a very, very complicated, powerful aspect of all of our lives and, and um needs our attention. I definitely agree. I think it's just more and more topical as well and something that people are acknowledging more than they ever did um, at the moment. And as well in your novel, grief and bereavement um, are very much at the heart of love and fame and everyone in the book deals with grief in very different ways. I personally thought it was really brave to use wit and humour to tackle grief, but why did you choose that tone and playfulness for such a tough subject? Well, it's hard to know really if I chose it or if it sort of chose me. I, I, I've always come at everything I've written sort of on the slant. My, my Judy Garland book um, sort of gives the impression it's a book about Judy Garland, but beneath that it's really a book about loss, pretending to be a book about love, pretending to be a book about me, pretending to be a book about Judy Garland. And I've always um, wanted... I think things are are much more powerful when you come at them from a sort of strange, unexpected mm -hmm. angle. Um, I suppose lots of grief um, produces lots of sort of strange coping mechanisms, and I've often found those um, sort of... not ex Amusing would be the wrong word, but really surprising in a, in a way that sort of uh, at times made me laugh. I, I was saying to you before that I had a occasion when I'd asked some people around for lunch and I thought I, I would make them something really delicious to eat and I'd gone and bought an insanely expensive piece of beef and I put it in the oven and did exactly what the butcher said but by the time I took it out it was just ruined and I just it didn't feel like the end of the world it was the end of the world <laughs> and I went upstairs and I got under my bed somewhere I've never been before 
<laughs> and I just sat there just thinking, what am I going to do? I've got eight hungry people downstairs. And, and, um, and I felt so sad, not just because I'd ruined the beef and it was so expensive, but I started feeling sad for anyone in life who'd never fulfilled their potential <laughs> for all the sorrow of poor cows dying for idiots like me who didn't know how to cook them respectfully. And just suddenly under the bed, the whole world just seemed like... And, you know... I did find myself giggling at the whole ludicrousness of the mm. thing and then went downstairs and just thought, next time you just stick to a chicken, just yeah. don't take any risks <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. And that's, that's the kind of um, insane situation grief can kind of propel you into where ordinary things are difficult and difficult things are just completely impossible. And, and what I was saying before about um, grief sort of not making you feel yourself, you... you lose a lot of your skills mm. when you're grieving and so your reactions become unreliable and... If you can't rely on your reactions, what else is there to rely on? So you, you're sort of um, looking for sort of little clues and spots of safety as you navigate your days. And I think there is quite a lot of, of, of humour in that. In the book, the heroine's mother, Jean, um, decides that um, because she finds the days too difficult and too long and too sort of full of uncomfortable feelings, she decides to go to bed halfway through the day, have two breakfasts in every 24-hour period, then give the day a chance to go better kind of thing. And she explains this to her daughter who's just thinking, what? But, you know, she's just trying everything she can to... Mm. And even the book after her bereavement becomes very childish. She At the start of the book, she sort of seems to be quite up and going, and halfway through the book, she's calling her mum mum the whole time which mm. no one of 26 really does and she's um, sort of a lot of her adult sophistication sort of falls away and she's just wanting to um, be a little child again and I think I think grief does take you back in that way and that has got a, a comic side there's one point when they're both on a bus together and they see a, a really gorgeous looking newborn baby in a pram and Eve just turns to her mum and says, people being babies, mum, is just too much. <laughs> see the mum just thinking, oh my God. <laughs> and that's funny, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. I, I Personally, when I read the book, I thought so much of it really made me smile and laugh and then, but kind of equally at the same time, there is this overlying grief that it kind of hits you right in your, right in your cockles. Um, and your memoir was made um, staged in the theatre. So if Love and Fame were to be made into a play or a film, do you have anybody in mind that could play the main characters? I didn't particularly. I can think that my... I can think who my sort of favourite actors are. I couldn't, I couldn't quite hit on someone to play mm. Eve because all the people I thought of were, were uh, getting on a bit, I think. Um, I thought that the actor Simon Williams might be rather good to play the father, but then I thought he's a bit posh. <laughs> And um, I really like the actors. I really like uh, Tamsin Gregg, Anne-Marie Duff, and Anna Maxwell-Martin, and Louisa Patikas, who plays Helen in The Archers. Mm. And Sally, Sally Ann Triplett was amazing in my play, so I'd, I'd like to have at least one of those yeah. in it somewhere. Brilliant. And finally, what are you working on next? Well, I'm just writing this um, rather strange short story. Um, when Henry James died, he left the plots for 70 different short stories in his notebooks, and uh, publishers have given all the plots of these short stories to 12 different writers who admire Henry James and asked us to choose one um, that we then write not, not at all as a pastiche but just using his his sort of initial germ for the story mm. and some of them aren't at all good and you realise why he never wrote <laughs> them but I, I found one and it's a story about a, 
a young carer who's looking after her mother who may or may not be quite as ill as everyone thinks and the sort of tension between duty and watching your life go by and what the right choices to make are in that sort of a situation. Great, well thank you so much for joining us and Love and Fame is out now. Welcome to the Virago Podcast. This is Lenny Goodings, um, Virago Chair, and today I'm talking to Rachel Seifert, author of A Boy in Winter, which is a book we published not long ago, long-listed for the Women's Prize, and one I'm really, really proud to have published. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. So I thought I would ask you just to you know, start very, in a very basic way, and can you tell us the story of A Boy in Winter? So A Boy in Winter is set over three days in the autumn of 1941 in Nazi-occupied Ukraine. And um, it's set in a very small town in the middle of the steppe. And um, the Nazis have already invaded in the summer. They've been in the town, occupying the town for a number of weeks. But um, on this particular morning, in November 1941, the SS arrive. And it's clear from the opening pages that the ensuing days are not going to be good. Um, and it's told from the perspective of five different characters. A German uh, civil engineer who is stationed there, a young Jewish boy, and uh, a young Ukrainian woman, her fiancé, and the Jewish boy's father. And their lives cross over over the course of those three days. And it's very um, intense, isn't it? It's very, it's a frightening book. Um, but it's also, I think it's a great book because it deals with the, with the big questions in life, you know, how should you behave, can you do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's territory you've gone into before mm -hmm. with your very first book, uh, The Dark Room, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, your a debut novel, amazing. Um, so you, you have been in this area before, but how did you get to this particular bit of the Ukraine and this bit of the story? Um, well, I was led here um, by a historian that was helping me with another book. And um, I was having trouble thinking about the resistor personality. That was her conclusion. You don't understand the resistor personality, Rachel. And uh, she gave me a series of essays called Civil Courage, which is a German term coined post-war, which means civilian courage. And um, it was a series of studies of different people who resisted the Nazis. And some of them were Germans, some of them were uh, Poles, Ukrainians, some of them were in the SS, some of them were civilians. Um, there were clerics among them. And one of them was a German civil engineer called Willy Aram, who um, was stationed in a small town in the Ukraine in 1941 uh, to build a road. And this man had um, long disdained the Nazis. He and, and this is wife. a real man. This is a real yeah. man. And he, uh, he and his wife were both Catholic Germans, both uh, very well-read, well-traveled, Anglophiles, um, and they detested the Nazis. They thought the Nazis were know-nothings, that, um, that they, they disdained their pseudoscience, uh, they disdained their racial policies, and um, they decided when the war broke out, they decided that there was no way they could countenance really fighting for the Nazis. So he avoided the draft uh, by becoming, um, uh, by joining the engineering corps. And so this man who had done everything he, he thought he could to avoid a war he considered criminal, 
then woke up one morning in November 1941 in the Ukraine and discovered that the Jews in the town that he was stationed were being rounded up by the SS. And so there was an even greater crime unfolding right before his eyes. And this just was irresistible for me. I had to write this perspective. I could see it. As soon as I was reading his testimony, I could see what he would have seen um, from his boarding house window. And so my instinct was just to write that scene. It was so compelling. Uh, the idea to me that you are, you feel that you know what is right and then a terrible wrong is happening in front of you and then what do you do? And what are the limits of your actions? Um, are you able to act beyond your fears? Because obviously anything that he does to help those people is going to come, the potential for it to come back on him in deadly fashion is very, very high. Um, so his perspective was very immediate and very visceral and I just felt I had to write it. And then as soon as I started writing his perspective, I started thinking about the people. So I wrote about a school teacher who he sees bundled out of the schoolhouse uh, on the town square opposite his boarding house. And then I just wanted to write this man's perspective and I wrote his relationship with his classes and then one of the children in his classes became the boy who is in the title. So it's the, the stories just sort of span off and um, I settled in the end on five key figures who were um, most immediate to me and I felt gave the reader five very contrasting perspectives on those three days and um, went with them. I'm very interested in the, the mother of these boys. Mm -hmm. So there's, even though it did, that there's a, it's a boy in winter because there's the, the oldest one is conscious of what he's doing and he's got his little brother on his back, basically, mm -hmm. doesn't he? So um, we called it a boy in winter. But it, the, so the boy in winter is a Jewish boy and he has been told by the school teacher and by, indeed by his father, hasn't he, to follow them and to go into this building where they're rounding up all the Jewish people. Mm. And the mother, you, I mean, she doesn't so much as um, come out and say anything um, as um, blatant as don't follow the instructions, but that is really what she, that's the message she's given to her son, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Her son is very rebellious, so he, he immediately, even in the school scenes that I wrote between him and the schoolmaster, he was always a very stubborn and rebellious boy. And then I thought, well, this boy, given his nature, is not going to just want to go and line up at 6am with 20 kilos of belongings and no more. He's not going to, he doesn't want to do what his father tells him to do, what his school teacher tells him what to do. And uh, so why is he going to do that for some upstart soldiers who've come into his town? He just isn't. And then um, I put myself in the shoes of his parents and there is that conflict there was that conflict within me. As a parent myself, I could understand his father's perspective, which was, I just want my children with me because I want them, I want to know where they are because this is a horribly frightening situation. I just want to be able to touch them and know that they're with me. And then his mother's perspective, which is, this could be a lot worse than we imagine. Um, they may not just be transporting us they may be doing something far worse. We have suffered far worse in pogroms. And um, it can mean death. And imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If my boy can escape death, then I would rather he do that. And But she is not somebody who is going to definitely be able to just say, run, because she's also going to want that. She's going to have that mother's feeling of, I want him to be next to me and touching me and all the rest of it. But... She also wants to allow him the possibility of survival. So it's the book is an awful lot about choice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then even the idea that one has choices, mm-hmm. qu- question mark. Yeah. You know, because what's so interesting is these two boys then are saved by somebody who apparently does the right thing. Mm-hmm. And you initially you think it's a, a good instinct um, because she's done it out of choice. And then you realize she hasn't really. I mean, it's... She didn't quite know what she was. So even the right thing is done by uh, someone who's rather unknowing, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. So tell us about her. So Yasia is the young Ukrainian girl who has come into the town to sell apples, but also to look for her lover, so her sweetheart, who has joined the uh, police force. So he's working for the Germans. And she's found an excuse to come away from her parents and come into the town, and she just happens to be there on the day when the roundup begins, when the SS have arrived. And um, the, a curfew is imposed. And she first encounters our boy, Yankel, the boy in winter, um, when he is trying to hide his brother, um, uh, you know, because the town is under curfew. And she just, she's in the same position. She has to get inside um, under curfew. And so she thinks they're just Ukrainian kids like her. So she takes them in out of a sense of motherliness and... Um, only after she has taken them in and after therefore she has compromised herself um, in the eyes of the Nazis she realises that they are Jewish and then she is terrified and I think that um, for me I did explore the resistor personality um, in depth uh, in the writing of this novel and what I discovered was that often bravery is just looks like fear <laughs> And um, it's not it's not made of certainty. It's made of half choices and uh, points at which you just have to do the right thing because you don't have anything else that you can do. She just has to keep them um, hidden because if she lets them go, she might be seen. They might be seen. They might tell who had hidden them 
and then she is in great danger. So it's partly self-preservation, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I do think that was the case in so many um, survival situations, mm. is there was a hefty dose of self-preservation. And also from Yankel's perspective, what does it look like to be a survivor? Um, for, from his father's perspective, being a survivor is somebody who does what the authorities say, who uh, makes as little trouble as possible, who causes as little anger as possible, and therefore will meet with as little violence as possible. That's Ephraim's idea, and this is why he says to his family, we all have to line up. If we do what they say, if we don't make them angry, we are much more likely to get through this. Um, whereas Yankel, he, um, he has to be really determined, and he has to also put other people in danger in order to survive himself. Mm. So he has to, um, tri he doesn't trick Yasya, but he also has to be determined to stay and he is willing to fight her to stay in the attic and not be let out and not be sent out into the night. You have that real feeling from him or I really felt from him as I was writing that scene that if she tried to put him out, he would, and, and his little brother, and he would fight her tooth and nail. So that's also what survival looks like is um, self-preservation mm. to the point of uh, violence if need be. So, and what I'm interested in is that how we we look back on these stories and you know when, when the years pass we think we can then see right and wrong really clearly particularly mm. around you know who protected Jewish people who who exposed them. I mean for example right now there's a new um, investigation into who actually was the one who revealed Anne Frank's family for example and so apparently publishers are going after that in a big way. But I think, you know, what you actually show us through this novel is that that's not actually, that's an anachronistic thing to do, think that there was a right way, there was a wrong way, mm. that people had choices, that, mm. that at, in the, it's a mess, some of it, isn't it? It is. And we, we're all blinkered. We all just have our own little sort of view on, very um, narrow view on life, and not because we are ignorant necessarily, but just because day-to-day -day experience only allows us that. So we don't necessarily know who is Jewish, who is not. Um, we don't necessarily know who is trustworthy, who is not. And we just, and particularly at a time where, um, as in my novel, where the SS are there, and it is a, a matter of minutes or moments that you have to make a decision, then you just it's not really a choice it's just a oh well I'll do this <laughs> so it doesn't really show because I think we look back at it and think oh that showed a character didn't mm. it but you're, you're suggesting that it's not well obviously a personality is at the heart of the choices of course but that actually some choices are not made you know, it's it's not a true reflection of who you are. It's just where you are. Uh, yeah, it's a combination of who you are and where you are, definitely. And and also that uh, the, that book of essays about the resistor personality showed me a lot of the time they weren't very nice people. Yeah, I'm interested in that. I love the idea of civilian courage. But what so what is the resistor personality? Um, often you have to be very bloody minded. So a lot of these people they weren't necessarily all the time in split second decision situations. They were people who, over a period of months, for example, uh, refused to exclude people from their services. You know, I'm talking about clerics here. Um, or who hid uh, Jewish people, or who made um, false documents for Jewish people. And that does involve a, a great deal of deliberate and thought through and consistently deliberate action. Mm. And, and consistent courage. And consistent courage. 
and consistent fear mm. um, and living with that consistent fear. And then I think if, you're, if you are able to do that, then you're going to be a very bloody-minded person. And uh, you also put everybody around you in danger. Mm. So if you have a family... You, you're doing this for your uh, your Jewish associate or former colleague or some you know somebody that you know that you have a personal relationship with. So maybe you've made that choice, but your wife didn't make that choice, and your children didn't make that mm. choice. Uh, but they are going to be di- directly affected. Mm. So often these people um, were went against their family's wishes, caused great fear to their families and harm to their families, and so. Can we see them as uncomplicatedly heroic? Um, I think we can admire them, but uh, certainly, but we can also see that to be that kind of person um, is certainly not easy, and we can maybe have a greater understanding why so few people uh, made those choices or lived that sort of life. Kind of a spoiler in some ways, but our boy survives. And how do you feel he feels by the end of this novel? Well, I was very keen that um, it w- wasn't just a story of death. Um, I was very aware that, you know, from the opening pages when the SS arrive, my readers will be thinking, I know what's going to happen and it's going to be awful. And I didn't want to just show that. I wanted to show it that from a new perspective that they wouldn't necessarily have seen before. Um, but I also wanted to show what was beyond that. And um, the people, the Jewish people who did live beyond that um, in the Ukraine were um, few and far between, but those who did survive were generally children. And they were children who were taken in by Ukrainians and they were baptized. And that is a double-edged ending. Um, Particularly for, because there are two boys, although there is my main protagonist boy, there's also his younger brother. when I think about his younger brother, little Momek, who is, you know, maximum four by the end, he will not remember his parents. He will not, unless he is, has a way of maintaining his Jewish heritage, um, he's not going to know that he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and Yankel, who is 13, he will remember and he will have that sense of loss. And although he has survived, he is... Um, there is a sort of an erasure that has happened there. So it was very important for me that the ending is not uh, just a happy ending, but it shows sometimes survival also means a certain amount of death. I'm going to take you to another novel right now, um, one that you've already given us a quote for by Anna Seegers, and the novel is called The Seventh Cross. And this is a book that hasn't been published. You had read it in German mm-hmm. um, as a young woman. Um, this book has not been published in English before. And you've, you've given us a wonderful quote, a masterpiece written in the midst of terror, but with such clarity, such acuity. acuity. Segers is a writer of rare insight. Um, so this is, just to quickly tell um, our listeners what this is, this is a seventh, The Seventh Cross is a European classic, as it was called. And, but it's a gripping story, escape story. It's sort of like Alone in Berlin, or even like your book. Um, Gunter Grass praised it. Um, it was 19, written in 1939, which is very interesting. So it was written right in, in the war and published in 1942. went on to become an international bestseller. Um, in America, it sold 400,000 copies. And it was translated into um, 30 languages, but never 
imprint with a UK publisher. And then it was made into a major film starring Spencer Tracy. But there's another film. There is another film. So Anna um, Seegers wrote a number of novels. The Seventh Cross is probably her most famous, but the other one is um, In Transit, um, which dealt with her experience of um, being in exile in uh, Marseille and trying to get beyond Europe. And um, this is now just as an indication of how important she still is in Germany as a writer. It's been recently been made into a major motion picture, which is set in present-day Marseille, actually all in modern dress. Um, and it would be a very interesting uh, film to watch, I think. And the author was a German Jew and a communist. who She fled Germany as the Nazis came to power, and she wrote this novel in exile in Paris. So there were three copies of the manuscript... Do you know this side mm -hmm. of it? Yes, there were three copies of the manuscript. One was lost by her friend when she was fleeing the Gestapo. One was destroyed in an air raid, and the third copy survived. When she was about to leave Nazi-occupied France, she sent a copy to her publisher in America, Little Brown of Boston. Um, so tell me, if, I'd like to know, first of all, how you came across it. Well, um, I came across it as a, as a young woman. Uh, my um, family are German. My grandmother had it on her bookshelves. And my grandmother, oddly enough, um, was a Nazi during the Nazi period. However, after the war, she very much bought into the notion that there were certain books that you had to read as a German. And Anna Seegers was one of those authors, or and um, The Seventh Cross was one of those books. And she, on her bookshelves, she had Günther Grass, she had Thomas Mann, she had Stefan Zweig, she had um, Heinrich Böll, and Anna Seegers was in there with all of those, with the canon. And so these were writers of exile, and these were post-war writers who looked at um, the German Nazi period very critically. And um, my grandmother, uh, towards the, the end of her life, also insisted every time I visited that I took a book um, from her shelves with me, and um, I took The Seventh Cross as one of the books that I took with me. It is a really wonderful book. Anna Seegers is, a, is an extraordinary writer. It's a very gripping escape story. So George Heisler, her protagonist, is a communist who has escaped from a concentration camp. So it's really it's about the, um, the political terror in Germany. So it's set in the 1930s. War is on the horizon. Uh, the German society is absolutely in the grip of the Nazis, not only under the cosh of the Nazis, but also in the grip of the euphoria. So many of the people that George Heisler encounters, so he, he spends uh, a week, we spend a week with him um, across the course of the narrative um, in everyday Mainz. So everyday life in Mainz is carrying on. He's escaped from this concentration camp and he has to make his way to the city um, where he has to find help in order to get beyond the German border. Um, and he encounters people from his childhood, people, strangers, his former girlfriend. Um, and all of these people, uh, and a Jewish doctor, one of the most extraordinary scenes is the Jewish doctor, and all of these people um, are compromised by the contact with him. Um, and uh, what I think Anna Seegers does so well is to make us want him to survive. <laughs> and to make us want these people to help him, but also to understand when these people just can't help him. And uh, they are, he goes at one point to a, an old school friend's house, and um, this man 
has not seen George for many years, but has not realised that he's been in the concentration camp because they've just lost touch. And he greets him, an old friend at the door, and uh, George doesn't say anything about being in a concentration camp or having escaped. He just uh, comes into the house and sees that his friend now has four children with another child on the way. He's got a wife. They are living the Nazi working man's dream in that they have all these children. He has secure employment. They're even going on Nazi party subsidised holidays. Um, what can he say to this man? How can he ask for help from this man? And yet, this is one person who does actually help him in the end, even though he realises over the course of the night that, they, that George spends in his apartment, he realises there is something very odd going on here. But he is the one person who really does act beyond himself mm. to help George. Um, so we're publishing this in May, and um, it's called The Seventh Cross, an extraordinary, and we have um, other people like Joseph Cannon also um, acknowledging what a great book it is. I want to ask something about um, your writing, which is quite unlike Anna Sager's, um, because it's, it is so spare. It's almost, well, I was going to say close to poetry, but I don't, I don't think that's quite right either. But it is, you know, so much of your writing is between the lines, isn't it? Hmm. Um, and how, I always, I get the impression that you write and then kind of scrape away the words <laughs> <laughs> to get down to the... You know, the things of consequence. And Absolutely. I think that is the process. So I'm always trying to uh, have things indicated through actions. So the way you describe how a character behaves rather than what a character says. Um, so I will be, as well as scraping away words um, and parts of scenes that are superfluous, I'll also be turning um, dialogue lines into um, just ways of behaving or exchanges of glances, that kind of thing, in order that it's um, just a lot more subtle. Mm. A lot more is left to the reader um, to infer. And I think if you infer something, then you're really able... If you're able to infer something from a piece of prose, then you're really inhabiting it and you're looking at the situation through the reader's eyes. Or then you're looking at the situation through the character's eyes. So it's a joint enterprise, I think, in terms of the way you write and the way you read your writing. Mm. You know, I don't mean that it's so tough or hard to read or anything, but you do. You're asking the reader to be part of the experience, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, and I'm always reading my own writing as a reader. So the start of every working day is to read what I did the day before and to see if it really does work as a reader. It does. So. Before we finish, you do casually almost say your grandmother was a Nazi, and I'm afraid I cannot let it go at that. <laughs> um, and partly, I suppose, this is why you return to this area too, don't you, is mm -hmm. to try and work out what having that heritage is in, in your family. Mm. Yes, yeah, so my, my grandparents were, were both Nazis. My grandfather was a, uh, a member of the SA in the 1930s, and then... Um, in the war, he was uh, with the Waffen-SS. He was a GP, so he was a doctor with a Waffen-SS unit throughout the course of the war until his capture in 1945. Um, and he was in Russian captivity until the early 1950s. My grandmother was a social worker for the Nazi party and ran a mother and baby home. Amongst other things, she ran a mother and baby home for um, service... Or, women whose um, husbands were in at the front. And um, 
Yes, after she went through denazification. She was also in Allied captivity after the war. She was, um, because she ran this mother and baby home, she was uh, arrested when the um, Americans entered the village um, and they interviewed her and they deemed her enough of an ideological threat to, that she had to go through denazification. And um, I don't think it was very effective. I think it was the change in uh, German society that came through uh, reading writers like Anna Siegers, through Gunther Grass, through Heinrich Böll, through the 68 student rebellions that came across Europe but were very important in uh, Germany too. It was those um, changes that changed my grandmother's mind more, far more than any um, denazification program that the Americans and then the British put her through. So novels can change lives? Well, I, you know, it's, it is interesting. I do think some novels um, can uh, bring, or if enough of a volume of novels like Anna Zegers, um are... And yours. And mine. <laughs> I'd like to put them that alongside Anna Zegers. Um, um If enough of them are published, then um, they can change minds. They can influence thinking on a social level. I do think that. And, I, and it's that generation of German writers or, you know, the, the exile writers like the Thomas Manns, like Anna Siegers, like Stefan Zweig, who unfortunately didn't uh, live beyond the Nazi period. Um, and then the ones that came after, like Gunther Grass and like Walter Kampowski and so on. Th- though there is a sense that what they wrote mattered and that uh, their books had consequence and they chose subjects that had consequence and devoted themselves to producing literature that could grip, um, like The Seventh Cross does. It's a a gripping plot and an incredibly detailed examination of human, the human character or the human experience in all its terrible, terrible shades. Um, That, uh, you know, that kind of writing really matters because it can get to your soul when you're reading it. I think we're going to put A Boy in Winter in the same trajectory. I know you're a different generation and you have a different backstory for sure, um, but you've been very brave in being honest about that and I think the book's amazing. So I'm going to put it right alongside The Seventh Cross. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago Books Podcast. I hope you'll join us again in a month's time for our next episode for more books, readers, writers, and conversation. In the meantime, please keep in touch and tell us what you think on Twitter at Virago Books or on Facebook at Virago Press. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 